Today's reading is Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flax of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this summer we've been in a a series titled The Short Stories of Jesus, in which we've been looking at the parables of Jesus, which was the primary mode by which Jesus taught people. And he told stories because stories actually provide the opportunity to be engaged and to participate. Stories ask us to be curious and to consider that there are various ways of actually thinking about the story that's told. Jesus wasn't a person who just simply gave us what he wanted us to hear. He gave it to us in such a way that we actually have to be with him and near him to understand what it is he's saying. And these parables actually cause us or force us as listeners to kind of reimagine our world in a new way. This week I was actually reminded of the film Stranger Than Fiction, um, the Will Ferrell movie, in, in which Harold Crick, he plays Harold Crick, who's this man who's living his life but then soon realizes that it's actually being narrated by someone else. He's living a different story than, he want, than the one he actually thought he was living, which then raises a whole host of different questions of what it means to live in light of that story. And I think parables function in a similar way in which Jesus is wanting to call into question the different stories that we tell ourselves, the different narratives that we live by, and to open our eyes to the narrative and to the story that should be guiding our lives. The story of God, the kingdom of God, and what life in that kingdom looks like. Well, as we move into this text, which after studying, I was like, why did I choose this one? Uh, Because there are so many different understandings of what it means, of what you're supposed to think about it, and it's actually one that throughout history the church has, has interpreted in so many different ways allegorically, or as a way of thinking about coming judgment, 
or, I mean, there's so many varied interpretations. So what I want to do is to not simply go through the text and tell you what it means, because I think that actually closes down the text and what Jesus wants to do, but to look at the story and to observe a few things and really ask the question, what is the parable intending to do? What is it wanting to do? Is it, what is it wanting to move us toward? Because I think that is an important question to ask when we come to parables. And in this parable, what you see are people whose actions don't cohere with what's going on around them. And I I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you see people and what they're doing, seems there seems to be a disconnect in terms of what they're doing and where they are. I'm thinking about people who like fall asleep at baseball games. Well, some of you are like, well, that makes total sense. But um, (laughs) for me, it doesn't. But people falling asleep at baseball games or people carrying on conversations in movie theaters or at concerts... Or the more present phenomenon, selfie sticks in a museum. (laughs) Now, FYI, selfie sticks are the worst. (laughs) I remember going to a museum um, not too long ago in which you walk around and there are people, instead of looking at the art, are turned away from the art and holding up this stick to get a picture of themselves and this piece of art. As if to suggest that something only has value if you're in it. (laughs) And now there's like this complete assault on the part of museums against selfie sticks. And a whole host of other places. Because these people are arguing that they actually prohibit others from entering into the space as it was designed to be entered into. And so the selfie stick becomes, for me, this picture of people actually missing out on what's around them. People who are not participating in the environment in the way that it was supposed to be participated in. And I think that that's a really interesting way to think about this text. That we have people who are missing out potentially on what's going on because their lives are in a disconnect of the story that they're involved in. And so the, verse, or so the passage in Matthew 25, if you want, you can open up your Bibles and turn there. We're going to start in verse, verse 1, which makes sense because it's the first verse. So this, the passage says, right at the beginning, then the kingdom of heaven will be like... dot, dot, dot. And I want to pause there. The kingdom of heaven will be like... And I want to pause there because it seems as if Jesus is going to tell a parable about something, what something will look like in the future. Specifically, the kingdom of heaven and what that will look like. And as Lou talked about last week, the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's ways of describing the kingdom of God. The full and complete reign of God, the world existing in the way that God intended it to exist. The kingdom of heaven will be like. Now this is fascinating because in the book of Matthew there seems to be a trajectory of imminence. We've looked at the parable, I think Lou actually preached on the parables in Matthew 13 in which talks about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed which will grow or like yeast or leaven in bread 
There's this, this sense in which the kingdom of God is something that's small and that over time will be growing. And then Matthew seems to, to turn up the dial on the imminence of the kingdom to suggest that it actually could come at any moment. And I love how the Gospels carry this tension of it's something that is small and growing, but it's something that could actually happen and come fully at any time. And it's in this tension that we are to think about these parables. And this parable specifically is to draw our attention to the future of what the kingdom of God will be like. Yes, it's inaugurated in the person of Jesus, but it will come fully. And when it does, the wrongs will be righted. There will be justice. There will be no more tears. And death will no longer be our fate. That is the kingdom of heaven, and that is what it will be like. And Jesus is saying, turn your attention there. And he's going to tell us a parable about what to look for. And because of its mysterious nature, not one metaphor or picture will do. If you look at Matthew 24, I mean, it's so mysterious in terms of what it will look like when Jesus actually is fully vindicated and comes back of darkness, and, and coming in on clouds. Because it's mysterious, and it's strange. And so there are all these different pictures of how we're to think of what the future will look like when Jesus returns. But in our text this morning, what it will look like is a party. When the kingdom of heaven comes fully and completely, when Jesus is vindicated, what we can expect is a party. A wedding feast. And so the question is, as we go into this text, are you ready to party? I was at a wedding last night, and it was an incredible party of people laughing and dancing like crazy, lots of joy, lots of tears. I mean, it was an actual party of people enjoying themselves. Have you, have you ever thought of the kingdom of heaven when it comes will be like the best wedding party that you've ever been to? I mean, that's a remarkable thing to think about. So let's get into some of the specifics of the parable and think about what it's intending to do. So in this parable, we have ten virgins, which you can also think of as bridesmaids. And they go out it says in the text, to meet the bridegroom. Now, wedding customs in this context were such that, that there was a wedding party and one of their functions was to actually go out and wait for the bridegroom because when, when the bridegroom would come, they would actually lead him to the bride's house. The groom would then get the bride and would take her back to his parents' house for the wedding feast. And so these bridesmaids go out and they're waiting for the bridegroom. And it says that there are five wise and five foolish. And their wisdom and foolishness is predicated upon the fact that some bring extra oil for their lamps and others do not. And it says that the bridegroom is delayed. And it's interesting that the parable sort of hinges on this delay. It's what creates the conflict. It's because of the delay these bridesmaids fall asleep 
and they get tired. And then all of a sudden we're told there's a cry at midnight. Wake up, and these bridesmaids are frantic. They notice that their lamps are actually going out. And so the wise ones are able to actually relight their lamps. And then the foolish, they, didn't have, they don't have enough oil. And so they turn to the wise bridesmaids and they say, can we borrow some of your oil? And they're, they're like, no way, get your own oil. Because there might not be enough for us. There's got to be a store open. Go buy some. And so these foolish bridesmaids then leave to get more oil for their lamps. And in the meantime, the bridegroom arrives. And it's only the wise bridesmaids, or yeah, the, oh, the wise bridesmaids that are there to welcome him. And they have their lamps lit and are able to escort him to the bride's home where he picks her up and he takes her back to his house where the wedding feast begins and we're told the door is shut. And these foolish bridesmaids return after having found a store where they were able to get some oil. But they're nervous because they actually don't hear any noises. There's no processional in the street. So they follow what they can hear to this house. And they hear that there's this party going on inside, but this door is shut, and so they knock on the door, and it's answered possibly by the bridegroom. And they say, let us in. And the bridegroom responds with, I don't know you. And then Jesus ends by saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And how do you feel about that ending? What do you wish had happened in the story? How would you have liked it to end? And I actually think those are really important questions. Because often these stories end in a way that are different from what I expect or different in the way that I'd like them to end. And if I was to think about how I'd rather them end actually says something about me and what I want and what I expect. Because this parable just simply ends with these five foolish bridesmaids left out of the party because they had one role to fulfill, but they were unprepared to do so. And so what is this parable, this strange, confusing, and somewhat scathing parable intended to do? Well, I think very specifically what it's intending to do is to create and produce within its listeners a sense of urgency. Specifically, a sense of urgency that actually manifests itself in in anticipating the party and being ready for the party. A sense of urgency that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the party that Jesus will bring can happen at any moment. So are you anticipating it and are you ready for it? And what does a life like that look like? Robert Farr Kappen, a 
a priest in New York, says this. What we are watching for is a party. And that party is not just down the street making up its mind when to come to us. It is already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes, and laughing its way up our cellar stairs. The unknown day and hour of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It is all part of the divine lark of grace. God is not our mother-in-law coming to see whether her wedding present china has been chipped. He is a funny old uncle with a salami under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other. We do indeed need to watch for him, because, but only because it would be such a pity to miss all the fun. I mean, what a crazy and awesome picture of Jesus coming and this party coming and that it's possible that we can miss out on all the fun. Are we living lives with a sense of urgency where we're anticipating that we can participate in that party and that we're ready to actually play a role in that party? Do we live as if a a party is actually going to happen? Do we live as if the kingdom of God will actually come? Because the unpreparedness and foolishness of the bridesmaids, I think, can suggest that maybe they didn't think it was actually ever going to happen. Perhaps there was a sense in which they don't really need to be prepared because it's been so long anyway, it's probably not even going to come. And I wonder if a lot of us live life in the same way. And if we were honest, is it possible that we don't actually believe that the kingdom of God will come and can come at any time, and so therefore we're hedging our bets? Getting out of life all we can for the moment in the most pleasurable way possible, because it may never actually happen. Keeping people at a distance, not being honest about our sadness, fears, and joys. Because it doesn't really matter. Numbing ourselves in all the ways that we consume and in all the destructive habits that we have. Because we don't want to be honest about all of the despair that we feel all of the time. So we guard ourselves and we guard our time and we guard our funds because we're hedging our bets that Jesus won't actually deliver on what he's promised to do. That we've been told there's a party coming, but it seems like it's been so long, it's never going to happen. So do we live as if a party, the kingdom of heaven, is actually going to come. And another question. Do we live as if we, Jesus' followers, actually have a role to play in that party? See, the thing about this parable that I cannot shake after I've read it so many times over and over and over again is that the people who were left out of the party were those who were actually on the inside. The people who were left out of the party were people who were part of the wedding party itself. 
these bridesmaids had a role to fulfill. And because of their unpreparedness, were unable to fulfill that role. And because they were off doing other things, they missed out on what was coming with the bridegroom. And so this isn't, this isn't first a text about people who don't know anything about the bridegroom, or who don't know anything about the kingdom of God coming. This is actually first a text to create urgency for those who have heard that, who, who even claim to be part of that, but who could possibly miss out on all of the fun when Jesus brings completely and fully his kingdom. Now, if that doesn't create a sense of urgency for you as it did for me, then be thinking about that. Be reading this text and consider how might we be missing out on what Jesus is up to and what Jesus will do. Because throughout the Gospels, Jesus came over and over and over again. And all the people who thought they were on the inside track of what God was up to missed out on what Jesus was doing and what he was bringing. Let's not miss out on the party that Jesus is bringing. Let's live with a sense of urgency anticipating this party, being ready for this party. Because we, as Jesus' followers, have a role to play in bringing the party A New Testament scholar, Klein Snodgrass, that's his real name, (laughs) says this, At the heart of the Christian faith is the expectation that one day God will set things right, that the kingdom will come, and that Jesus will be vindicated and his dream put into effect. Living as a wise human being means being prepared for God's reign. Readiness is an attitude, a commitment, and a lifestyle. It means living in ways that comport with the character of the kingdom and being faithful at all times. Does my life, does your life, does our life as a church make sense with the party that will come with Jesus when he is fully vindicated and when all things are made new? Does your life cohere with that story that Jesus at any moment will come and make all things new? Because this text seems to suggest that what we have is now. The time we have to be prepared is now. This week, I just kept thinking about this text and this sense of urgency and, and reminded afresh that the only moment I'm guaranteed is the one I am in at that moment. Which, if you think about that, is very humbling. I was, I was having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about this. I'm like, this is what I have. There is no guarantee that I'm going to get in my car and that I'm going to be able to make it home and actually hang out with my kids and my wife. This is what I have. So what does that mean for this moment? And if I make it home and I'm hanging out with my boys, that's the moment I have. What does that mean for that moment? The life that we have to orient around Jesus is the life that we have right now 
in this moment. I'd like to read an extended quote from Barbara Brown Taylor because she can say it so much better than I ever could. And so listen to this as she talks about this text in Matthew. I have a similar problem with the future, which is the closet where I store all my good intentions about the people in my life who I'm going to treat better one day real soon. I'm not always going to be this busy and unfocused, I tell myself. Any moment now, I'm going to have the time to do the things I've always meant to do and say the things I've always meant to say. I'm going to do this or that. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to make this life count. And in the meantime, this vision of the future gets me off the hook today. I can even fool myself into believing that my splendid intentions make me a better person right now and that time will forever expand to meet my needs. But according to Matthew, it's time to wake up. No matter where Jesus is, it is time to stop living in the past and in the future and to start living right now because whenever the end comes, that is when it will come in the now. And meanwhile, our best chance of discovering what abundant life is all about is to start living into it right now. Every morning when you wake up, decide to live the life God has given you to live right now. Refuse to live yesterday over and over again and resist the temptation to save your best self for tomorrow. There's no time for that, no matter how much time is left. Go ahead and make that decision, write that letter, get the help you need, love people, give yourself away. Live prepared. Live a caught-up life, not a put-off life, so that wherever you are, you are ready for God. Live a caught-up life, not a put-off life. Live a, live a life that is caught up with the kingdom of God and with what life in that kingdom looks like. Live a life that is caught up with the reality that Jesus is bringing a party, and with that party comes the best life and future you could imagine. Better than the one that you want and that you think you want and the one that you're dreaming up right now. Live a life that is caught up with this vision of the future that when Jesus comes, everything will be made new. Relationships will exist the way that they're supposed to. People won't be abandoned. They won't feel despair. There will be no more tears. Live a life that is caught up with a kingdom that suggests that forgiveness is actually better than bitterness. A life that is caught up with a kingdom that suggests that life is, in fact, more and more compelling than death. And we can give life over and over and over again in all these different ways. Or we can give death, but live a life that is caught up that says, no, life is what prevails over death. Death will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. Live a life that is caught up with that vision. Imagine that type of life. And then consider how it might affect and change and transform the way that you live now. Because now is the time that we have. Now is the life that you've been given to orient around Jesus. Now is the time to give up that habit or that way of being that actually takes you away from being caught up in that life. Now is the time to, get, to actually name things for what they are, which is idols. And to say, they cannot give me life, but Jesus can and will. Now is the time to give our lives to Christ 
so that his life might flow out of us to others. What we have is now. Thanks be to God.